Hi, and thanks for joining us. I'm Ada Lee, Vice President Strategy at BE Works. And today I'm talking to Dan Ariely, Professor of Psychology and Behavioral Economics at Duke University. We're going to talk about his perspective on healthcare's biggest burning questions, including what are the biggest barriers to new treatment adoption by physicians? What can we do about it? What's the biggest barrier to medication compliance? And what can we do about that? How can trust be strengthened for patient-physician relationships? And more. What do you think is one of the biggest barriers to adoption of treatments by physicians? And what can we do about it? So I think that in general, in the way that medicine is practiced, uh, physicians are under very, a, a very large time constraint. Mm -hmm. And what we know is that under time constraint and stress, it's not the right time to explore new directions. Mm -hmm. uh, what people do in, in those times is to basically uh, go back to their standard uh, practices. You know, this is why you know, the, the military people practice so much because unless, like how much do you need to practice shooting? You're just pressing a button. Mm -hmm. but, but unless it's very, very practiced at the time of stress, you're not going, to, not going to do it. So I think that the biggest barrier is that when physicians diagnose a patient, and their mind starts searching for an answer or a possible direction, the time constraint and the pressure uh, limit the scope of their exploration. They and they focus on the things that are the most common, and therefore, by definition, not anything new. Yeah. Not more. And you know, given this, is there anything that? Um is there anything that we can do about this? Um, so, so what it means really is that it's not about actual knowledge. It's about being at the top of mind during a point of uh, very few seconds when, when they have time to do that. So the question is, how do be things become top of mind? Gifts used to do it. Like you had the mug and mm -hmm. it says drug A and then... Yeah. Drug A would be more top of mind. And I think that, you know, given that this is not possible, the, the mugs with the, with, the, with the branding, I think that what, what we need is to give people a practice of prescribing the right drug. Uh, and that goes back to the, the micro-learning mm -hmm. notion that we had before, that, that people need to practice it. If you had a drug that you never prescribed, the oddity will be top of mind, it's just very low. Mm -hmm. You need something to make it top of mind, and I think you need to practice subscribing it. If, if it's to hypothetical patients, you just need the experience of that. That's one approach. But the second approach is to say, when we think about habit change, there are basically three periods. There's the first period, like the first trial, which is a lot of effort. If I'm used to prescribing drug X, prescribing drug Y, just a lot of effort. I need to know, remember how to type it and print it, and maybe it has different instructions. And I just, it's just a lot of effort. So we need to, to figure out how do we make the first one. Then after we make the first one, then there's the next X. Usually we think about six weeks as a habit creation with drugs. I'm not sure what, 
what is the equivalent, yeah. but maybe it's then we are prescribing the next 30 that we also need to pay attention to, and then it becomes easier. So I think that pharma companies need to think about the first, the next 30, and that's what they need to focus on. So for example, they could get physicians to say, this week I promise to try and prescribe X, to consider X for all my relevance. I mean, you can't do it for a long time, but, but if, you, if you say, okay, I'll do it for one. So, so we need extra effort on the first time, less on the next study, and then we can relax. Interesting. Now, related, you talked a little bit of, or, uh, you know, you talked about habit formation. Um, when it comes... And it's not exactly habit formation. It's, yeah. it's not the right terminology because mm. usually uh, when, when we say habit, we mean something that people do without thinking. Mm, interesting. Like you go to the bathroom and you yeah. brush your teeth and later on I can ask you, did you brush your teeth? And you say, I don't remember. Right. So that's that's a habit, right? Where the, yeah, yeah, the yeah. attention system is changing, it's not mm. effortful at all and so on. I don't think prescribing medication is a real habit. Mm. It's routinized to do something, but it's not exactly a habit. So there's a differentiation between habits, low attention, rituals, extra attention, and routinized things that are less attention, but they're not exactly like habits. Yeah, interesting. Shifting gears a little bit to think about medication which is primarily a patient problem. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's people who work, you know, in the healthcare uh, field. Uh, some believe that their, you know, habit plays an important role, routine plays a, an important role in medication compliance. From your perspective, you know, is that necessarily the biggest barrier to medication compliance or is there something else? So, so I don't know what's the biggest and it really varies by mm-hmm. medication. So if you look at something like pump inhibitors, mm-hmm. no problem with adherence. Like pain. I mean, every pain, yeah. there's really no, no issue. Um, I think th- there are, if you think about the psychological causes, um, one of them is memory. And, uh, people just don't remember. And there's lots of things we can do for memory including where we place things and reminders and so on. And, and habits are good for that too. Um, but there are medications that have negative side effects. And people don't take them because they don't remember. They don't take them on purpose because mm-hmm. it's not the right cost-benefit, short-term cost-benefit analysis right. for that. And we need to think about those in very different ways. We need to think about those in a very different way because it's not memory. It's not, oh, if I only remember, I would take it. It's something that people actually decided they don't want to take. Um, and there are many of those. And then there's another category, which are not the ones that have negative side effects, but are the ones that are letting people feel that they're not healthy. So, for example, in diabetes, uh, physicians often tell their patient, unless you take your medication regularly you will be forced to take mealtime insulin. So it's a, and then when they get to mealtime insulin, it has the implication they failed mm-hmm. in some way. I wouldn't have gotten here if I only did things well. So there's all kinds of medications that are creating negative self-image. So it's not the side effects. Um, and, and it's different because things that have side effects, it's about this pill, yes or no. Things that have something that people are ashamed of or so on, it's, it's something that they don't want the whole category. So if you ask me how big pure memory compared to the other ones, I don't think it's very big. I think it's 
it's important, but I think you could have the perfect reminder and there will still be lots of medication, lack of medication adherence. On the barriers about uh, emotions, feeling ashamed, yeah. feeling that you failed, you know, what can we do to help patients who feel that way overcome it? Yeah. So part of the way we give people information about their illness is very depressing. Um, most things are just going to get worse. Yeah. That's it. Right? We age, mm -hmm. it's going to be worse. There are very few things in health that they're going to get better. If you have glaucoma, you have to take these very, very painful drops. The odds that your glaucoma will get better now, that most you can do is slow down the deterioration. Mm -hmm. If you have diabetes, most likely you're just slowing the deterioration. In most things, you're just slowing the deterioration. Yeah. But the way we report on those things are depressing because we show the number, not the improvement. Mm -hmm. So just imagine that uh, you're a diabetic patient and your A1C has deteriorated, but I'm, as your physician, really happy because your deterioration has been slower than average. Yeah. Much slower than average, but still you deteriorated. Are you going to be happy with those numbers? The answer is naturally no. Mm -hmm. You want to see improvement. Staying the same as last year doesn't give people such satisfaction. You want to see a sense of improvement. And I think what we need to do is to change the numbers. I don't think we need to report to people A1C. I think what we need to report to people is how have they deteriorated compared to the expectation of deterioration. Yeah. And if somebody deteriorated less than expected, they should feel successful as they, yeah. as they, should, as they should be. The point in this I got from Shepa, took me a long time to get to this insight, is that when we give people information, we have three goals. Accuracy, motivation, and helping people understand the relationship between cause and effect. Mm -hmm. And now think about which one of those do you really care about. If you want to change behavior, then you first want motivation. Yeah. Then you want relationship between cause and effect. And then you want accuracy. And actually, if they don't, if accuracy is counterproductive, you might not want to show it at all. So do I really want to show people their A1C? No. I want to give them the kind of score that would motivate the people who are doing the steps in the right direction to do more of those steps. Mm -hmm. um, we, we need to understand that in most cases, um, the data is anti-motivating. It's really interesting. One of the things that uh, you always talk about that I kind of latch onto is making the invisible visible. Mm -hmm. And late last year, uh, C2 organized a, uh, a biome summit with uh, Novartis focused on cardiovascular disease. Mm -hmm. And how can we get people to pay more attention to cardiovascular disease, do more preventative uh, behaviors to prevent, yep. uh, you know, this, this, this bad outcome. And one of the things that we talked about is that, well, cause and effect, if you do everything right, the optimal outcome is that nothing bad actually happens to you. No. Not very motivating. No. Uh, and if you do certain things or you fail to do certain things, then certainly you will get feedback. And that's the no. only feedback that you get. That's right. And even if you do the right things, you might still get negative. And you might still. You still get older. Yeah. Um, here's, here's another thing. Think about a C student. Right, somebody who's destined to get between 70 and 80. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, we'll just let us assume there's somebody like this. How motivating is it for that person to get the grade? Like, you would hope that they will get 80, they'll be very happy. No, because 80 doesn't represent success. 
it still represents you're really far from success. Mm-hmm. So when you think about the whole class, okay, maybe you need to, to give grades to everybody. But if you think about somebody who's a C student in, in our medical example, somebody who's born with bad genes or have a history of illness or got injured or something happened, and now they're a C student. They could never be 100. They could never be... The best they could do is 80. Mm-hmm. How exciting is it to know that no matter what you do, yeah. you'll, you'll be like, would you join a marathon if you knew that you're, likely, you're not going to finish? Mm-hmm. No. So what we need to do, for example, for students, I think uh, we need to give people different scores. The guy who is a C student that got an 80 needs to feel the same way that the, mm. the kid who got 100, that could get 100, yeah. felt. Super interesting. Um, multiple com- comorbidities. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of times, uh, you know, people who, uh, especially those who work uh, in pharma, it's almost like they have uh, uh, blinders on. Uh, this is what I'm told. Uh, you work in a, uh, you're employed to work in a certain disease state, say dermatology, and within that you're assigned to work on a particular drug or particular treatment. Um, and the problem with that is that a lot of times many conditions, diabetes, skin mm-hmm. conditions, happen at the same time. Yeah, they all happen at the same time. And so what are some of the, I quote, what are the ways we can think more holistically about someone's health condition, especially when these conditions are dealt with by multiple providers? It's a weird one. I'm not sure. Yeah. So there's lots of things to do. There's lots of things to say. The first thing I think we need to do is to appreciate the complexity of the patient of managing multiple diseases. And especially because if it's coming from different providers, they have to do the integration. Mm-hmm. If one person says A and one person does B, they have to create a routine that does A and B. And if we think about the stress that comes from managing a disease, managing two is extra tough. You know, I think that a, we, we have to come with a single point of, of contact. Like it, if, if you ask me like to draw it, I would say all physicians give information to one physician and then that physician creates the, the map for the, for the patient, especially because there need to be all kinds of accommodation across different diseases. Yeah. Right? If, you're, if you're diabetic and you have psoriasis, when exactly, like how do you manage it? So the, I think we need to pay much more attention to the treatment plan so that people have a chance to integrate in everything and we need to understand that uh, we're taking a much bigger of people's day in terms of time and attention and commitment. And it becomes more important to provide feeling of success. Now, here is something I haven't thought about in this context. So I just want to try. You know, I think COVID has taught us how important resilience is. And resilience has lots of different definitions. But I think about resilience as an insurance policy. So you basically say, I know that if something will go bad, somebody would catch me. Like secure detachment yeah. in child development, where you basically feel that the world is on your side. And I think that with multiple illness, there's a good chance that people feel that their body is betraying them, things are too complex. Mm-hmm. And we need to think about what is the source of resilience to them. Like, you know, there's the, how well can you deal with adversity? Because the, the stress, and it's not the issue of having somebody, it's, it's the notion that if you need somebody, they'll be there for you. Yeah. And then, do you know the research we did on 
on breakpoints. Okay. But I'll tell you what the, what the paper was about. The main point is the following. We try to see what separates the people who manage their A1C and the people who don't manage Mm -hmm. Some people are better, some people are worse. And what we found, it was none of the regular candidates wasn't understanding the illness or the side effects of this or motivation. It was all about how many times a week they reported to have a breakpoint, where you basically get to the evening and you say to the language, fuck it, I don't care, and you eat something bad. Right. Oh, okay. Yeah. And you know, we all have complex lives. Things accumulate throughout the day. And at some point... Mm-hmm. Uh, something can become bad. And if you manage multiple diseases, there's just more of that. So I think what we need to recognize again is this kind of, you just have no energy to deal mm-hmm. to deal with anymore. So the feeling of success, the feeling of support, all of those are, are so much more important. Yeah, that's, that's super interesting. One of the uh, uh, related questions on, you know, patients getting support um, is... And I quote verbatim, how should we adjust our approach to changing patient behavior to take into account the other influences? Uh, for example, uh, spouses, family members, patient advisory boards, the care coordinators that may impact a patient's perspective. How do we take this into account? So there are some results showing that people who are lonely are less adherent. Mm-hmm. And I think it's because uh, people... We do lots of things for other people. Um, so creating, you know, not overtly harsh, but creating some kind of expectations uh, of, of medication and also a sense of meaning and contribution and feeling that they're not doing just for themselves, but for the, yeah. for the group as a whole, I think all of those are important. I think family members, you know, they're, they're quite who do people live for is very important. <laughs> Did you agree with our discussion today? Do you have alternative ideas or questions? We'd love to hear from you. Contact us at info at beworks.com. And make sure to follow us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts to hear more intriguing talks from BEWorks. Works.